These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth and Dizahab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Siho, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon and at Edrael had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighbouring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. At that time I said to you, You are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today... You are as numerous as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your ancestors, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding and respected men from each of your tribes and I will set them over you. You answered me, what you propose to do is good. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you, as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and of tribal of, as tribal officials. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly, whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of anyone, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you, and I will hear it. And at that time I told you everything you were to do. Then, as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went toward the hill country of the Amorites, through all the vast and dreadful wilderness that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, You have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected twelve of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country. They came to the valley of Eshkol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us, so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They said, The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large. The walls are up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you, as he did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes and in the wilderness. 
There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. All the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, No one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, You shall not enter it either, but your assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out towards the desert along the route of the Red Sea. Then you replied, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God has commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight, because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites, who lived in those hills, came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. I'll just pray uh, for uh, the time together. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you uh, hungry and thirsty for every word that comes from your mouth. We thank you for Gary and the work that you have done in his life. Uh, we pray that we uh, here who listen, that uh, by the power of your spirit, you would take your eternal word and apply it deep into our hearts to encourage and challenge us all for your glory and honour alone. Amen. Let me introduce Gary to you. Gary Miller is a Northern Irishman who's married to Fiona, a Scot born in Peru. Sounds like the premise for a novel. He's a dad to Lucy, Sophie and Rebecca. He loves teaching people about Jesus from the Bible. Gary has been the principal of Queensland uh, Theological College in Brisbane since January 2012. And before that, he was the pastor of a pair of Presbyterian churches in Dublin, Ireland. I've been really encouraged listening to Gary's preaching online. And it's great now to, to hear him and meet him in the flesh. And he's both someone who will model to us biblical teaching, as well as apply biblical teaching to us ourselves as we think about this work of planting churches across our country. Thanks, Gary. Uh, thanks, Mikey. That, that's obviously uh, QTC students clapping, and they're only clapping because we let them come here instead of going to lectures. So uh, uh, it's really good to be here. Um, it's also lovely for me to be asked to speak on, on Deuteronomy. I've spent a large part of my life uh, thinking about being shaped by this book, but I haven't spoken on it for ages. So it's a real treat for me to come back and uh, read this marvelous book again. Um, one of my lasting memories of, of school was the Christmas carol service just before we broke up for the holidays. I remember the school orchestra was always terrible. I remember we were all desperate for it to be over so that we could go down into the, the CBD to buy burgers. And I remember a man called Dr. Boyd. You'll never have heard of him. He was the chairman of our school board. He was also the minister of our church. In fact, this old man was just about my earliest memory of church. Uh, as I grew up, he was just there 
part of the furniture of my life. He was there when we joined the church. He was there when I went to Sunday school as a kid. He was there when I made it to high school. And, and even now, as I, was, as I left high school, he was still there. He was this very old man. And as the chair of the board, he used to stand up to speak to 1,500 people as we remember Jesus' birth. And he looked around. Some of us he'd known almost since we were born. And every year as he grew increasingly frail, he always said the same thing at this key moment, this great opportunity for the gospel. He always said, always be careful crossing the road. Not bad advice, but hardly the most significant thing a minister of the gospel could have said year on year. Now, if you can imagine what it was like for us sitting there listening to this old man, most of us had known him for years, looking out fondly on a sea of faces, oozing care, taking his responsibility for us terribly seriously, then you won't actually have any problem imagining the scene in the book of Deuteronomy. It's 40 years after the Exodus. This fledgling nation Israel has spent those years wandering around in the desert simply trying to survive. They come so close to reaching their destination then make a tragic choice to turn back. Because of their stubbornness and stupidity an entire generation has died without reaching their goal. But now they've made it back to the edge of the land they've been longing for. They're right on the edge Of this land that has been promised to them. They're high on a plane looking down into this lush piece of real estate. At last they can see it. They can smell it. They can almost touch it. And an old man slowly rises to speak to them for one last time. A man they've known for their whole lives. And what does he say? Always be careful. No, he doesn't say that. He says, this man gives one of the greatest speeches in all history. He preaches what I'm convinced is the greatest sermon ever preached by an ordinary man. His name? Moses. For almost 50 years, he's led these people. Under him, the rabble has become a nation. Under Moses, they frustrated the greatest superpower in the world. Under Moses, they'd received the actual words of God and discovered that God wanted them to be his very own and live as his treasured possession. Under Moses, their parents had lived and died. Under Moses, they'd been born and grown up and learned of the promises made to their forefathers, including the promise to them to give them this land. Now their journey's almost over. But so is Moses' journey. He knows he's going no further. They know he will go no further. And before he dies, he speaks. He preaches for one last time. And in this talk, he draws together all the threads of Genesis through to Numbers and lays the foundation for much of the rest of the Bible. It's a long talk. I think he had to take a few breaks along the way. I suspect the division of Deuteronomy into different speeches is actually to allow for toilet breaks for Moses. But it's theologically brilliant. It's powerfully applied. And it's so unbelievably practical. As Moses explains to these people whom he loves what it's going to take for them to live faithfully in a special place, a a place where life was going to be significantly easier. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and feel a substantial amount of guilt. Why? Because I live in Queensland, where the weather is beautiful one day and perfect the next. There is no sleet, no snow, no fog, no cold that cuts through you, no horizontal rain. It's very different from summer in Ireland, living in Queensland. For the past three and a half years, I've got to say, I have felt constantly like I am on holiday. And yeah, the mining boom's over, the economy's still healthy, the coffee's so much better, the sun is shining. It all adds up to the fact that for me, life in Australia is very good. In fact, for us, life is very different. Dare I say, easier. So the challenge that I live with is coping 
with living for God when life is easier. For the Israelites, life is about to change in, in many ways. It is about to get easier for them. After 40 years of scraping around in the desert, they're about to walk into paradise, and that's going to bring a whole new set of challenges. In Deuteronomy 6 that we'll look at on Wednesday, uh, Moses describes it like this, and when Yahweh your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it'll have great and good cities that you did not build. You're going to get houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. You're going to eat and be full. Life's going to be really good. It's a moment of opportunity, excitement. It's time for entrepreneurs to come into their own. They've got this whole land spread before them and grumpy old Moses who's been there and seen it and done it speaks to this new generation and says, you know what? There's some things you really need to know before life gets easy. And that's why we're looking at Deuteronomy over these next couple of days. It may not seem to be the most obvious choice when it comes to a church planting conference, but I think it's a great one. Because these opening chapters are hugely relevant to people like us. People who long to see new churches evangelized into existence. These chapters are tailor-made for people Largely younger people who are raring to go, raring to do new things, raring to change the face of the land. And let's face it, if you're here, you're someone who gets excited about new projects. Someone for whom change is more likely to be a drug than a drag. Someone who's restless rather than tempted to settle down. You know, I'd be surprised, to be honest, if too many pessimists signed up for a conference called Multiply. They're all waiting for the dates for, you know, shrink and divide to come next year, you know? you know? You see, in Deuteronomy, Moses brings a unique challenge to the kind of people for whom church planting really is the most attractive option, perhaps even the easiest option for people who think, yes, free at last as the launch date approaches. For people who just love the idea of not having to deal with old Mrs. Murphy, whose great-great-grandfather came out with the first fleet, actually was chained to part of the first fleet when, when he came out, and whose family have been happily obstructing any progress in church ever since. <laughs> this is for people who are thrilled with the idea of a blank sheet. This book is a special relevance for people who are tempted to think, now move over and we'll show you what can be done. These things were written for us. And unfortunately, we're not going to get through the whole book in three talks, but we are going to look at the, the, the opening chapters, starting today with the church planter in humility from all of chapters one to three, and then the church planter in the gospel from chapter four, which I think is actually one of the most stunning chapters in the whole Bible, and then finally the church planter in God from five and six. So it's chapters one to three, the whole thing. The first thing we need to take away from this is we need to take our sin seriously. Uh, you don't have to read very far in the book of Deuteronomy to see that Moses is going on about the people's sin. It was J.C. Ryle, the 19th century English bishop of Liverpool, who wrote, a right knowledge of sin is at the root of all saving Christianity. Moses would have said a loud amen to that, because right from the off, this book just uh, confronts us with the reality of sin. See, before Moses even starts talking in verses 1 and 2, we get this. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arava, opposite Suf, and then the geographical detail. Then verse 2, it is 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Where are God's people when Moses gives this talk? They're in the Moabite desert on the edge of the land. In 40 years, how far have they made it? An 11-day journey. Less than 150 Ks. They've had 40 years and they've almost made it to Sydney. No, this was not good progress. Why did it take them so long? Because of all the moaning and arguing and disobedience. Because of all the we know better and we're not going in there that had gone on up to this point in Israel. Up to this point, it had not gone very well. And Moses knows that they need to face this. That's why when he actually starts talking, he makes them relive the painful events of the past in chapter 1. Now, 
I should just say a word about Moses' publisher to get that out of the way. Almost every word of this book is attributed to Moses. But clearly, somebody had to take notes uh, right up his death. Although, if you want to believe that Moses prophetically wrote his own obituary in the past tense, that's absolutely fine. But, but in these early chapters in particular, every so often, the publisher gives us just a little help to get some of Moses' subtler points, which would have been very obvious to those sitting in the grass in front of him. He fills in a little bit of historical or geographical detail. It takes 11 days to get from where we were to where we are. He helps us to, to get the impact of what was obvious to the hearers. Because that is kind of the obvious sort of elephant in the tent for all Israel. It's taken them 40 years to get less than 150 Ks up the road. Whatever issues there may be elsewhere in the Old Testament, here it's pretty clear that the publisher's explanatory notes do nothing other than make Moses' own point a little bit clearer for those who come later. We'll see that in a moment. Moses himself starts talking in verse 6, and after a brief reminder of the successful campaigns against King Sihon and Og, to which we'll, we'll come back, he reminds them then that it's God himself who launched them out from Sinai, Horeb, with a rock-solid promise that he would bring them into the land. And then he makes them walk step by step through the painful memories of their recent journey. He points out, that early in the peace, leaders had been appointed to help ease the burden that he'd carried from verses 9 to 18. Why does he do it? Moses wants to make sure they get right up front that the disaster of the last 40 years was not all his fault. Whilst Moses has to, has to face his own issues, as we'll see, he wants to make sure that the people get the fact they all share responsibility for what has happened. He knows we're masters at finding ways to convince ourselves that our struggles, our mistakes, our messes are ultimately really somebody else's fault. And this wise old man shuts down the loophole before he goes any further. They all share responsibility, and then he launches into the travelogue. There's a TV program in the UK called Holidays from Hell, and that's not a million miles from what Moses describes next. You'll see that from verse 22. All of you came near, said, let's send men out that they may explore the land before us. Bring us word again by way of the, uh, of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. And seemed fine to me. Verse 24, they turned and went up into the hill country, came to the valley of Eshcol, took in their hands some of the fruit, came back. It's good land. Verse 26, yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of Yahweh, your God. You whinged, murmured in your tents. And said, because Yahweh hated us, he's brought us out of the land. Good has become evil. Verse 28, where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are bigger than we are. The cities are strong. And besides, we've seen the sons of the Anakim there. We've seen giants. Really? That's your best reason? for not going into the land? Moses said, don't be scared. God will fight for you. Verse 32, yet in spite of this word, you did not believe Yahweh your God. They refused to obey. They rebelled against God's clear instructions. They complained. They accused God of hating them. They refused to believe God. They would not trust God. This is not a good day for God's people. And it is terrible consequences, verse 35, as we read. And then in verse 40, with a grinding of the gears, the exodus itself goes into reverse, and God's people head back to the Red Sea. Even Moses himself is, is affected, verse 37. The greatest leader Israel ever had doesn't make it into the land. If you read Numbers 27, you'll see that Moses is excluded for his failure to lead these stubborn, ungodly people well. He rebels against God's word. He doesn't uphold God's name in the face of their rebellion. It's not that Moses doesn't know that. It's not he's trying to shift the blame. He just wants those people sitting on the grass in front of him to get the fact that his mistakes were responding badly and foolishly to the ungodliness of their parents. He wants them to get how bad it was back there in the desert. And if God's people are to have any real future in the land, they're going to have to face these past mistakes. 
I don't know if you realize this, but not facing our past mistakes is absolutely crippling if we're trying to live for Jesus. Even though there's something in most of us that just wants to say, look, it was bad, it is over, now forget it, let's get on with it. There's a whole country to reach here. It just doesn't work. Not dealing with the past is fatal. That's why Moses goes back over the previous 40 years with a very uncomfortable magnifying glass, carefully exposing the flaws, the tendencies, the choices, which led to disaster back then and will do so again unless they do something about it. And that's a message which we do need to take seriously. Now, while there are those of us in the room who are prone to introspection and becoming crippled by our faults and our guilt, I guess that here at Multiply, the danger is that there are far more of us who are too busy getting on with gospel ministry to bother much about reflection at all. Yeah, sure, we make mistakes. We made some bad choices. But you know what? There's too much going on. There are too many gospel opportunities. There's too much thinking and planning and dreaming to do to spend much time sitting around in a darkened room thinking about our records so far, including our missteps. There's not enough time for us to think, to reflect, so that the sinful flaws in our character that we desperately need God to change float to the surface of our consciousness. But we need to take the contours of our sins seriously, especially if we are to lead people in new gospel initiatives. As far as Israel is concerned, I do wonder sometimes how things might have been different. Had they ever thought through properly their own propensity for terrible decision-making? What about us? Honestly. Have you ever thought long and hard and prayerfully examined yourself? Now, I know that self-examination can all too easily spill over into self-pity and preoccupation. But I honestly don't think that a huge percentage of Aussie males in particular are liable to end up there. We do oblivious better than anyone else. No, not self-examination. So let me ask you, are you growing in awareness not just of your sinfulness in general, but in the particular detailed and rapidly changing contours of your own brokenness? If not, then look back. Look back days, weeks, months, however long that it takes. A couple of weeks ago, um, I got a bit cranky in a meeting. Uh, someone here who was in the meeting, he'll verify I did. It was a meeting about church planting. The outcome wasn't as clear-cut as I would have liked. No one else was moving as quickly as I would have liked. And so I got cranky. I could feel myself going there. I knew it wasn't helpful, but I went there anyway. Later in the meeting, when it moved on to kind of boring stuff that I'd lost interest in, I, I couldn't get rid of the unavoidable sense that I'd been a bit of an ass. You know? I tried to blame it on the lack of vision in the room. Lack of courage, the others. I knew there was more to it than that. So I prayed and thought, not just over the meeting, but over months and years. And I had to face the fact that even though I've been aware of it for a long time, I still have an ungodly, impetuous streak. I like to describe it as being quick thinking and decisive. You know, I like to, to talk about it in terms of making things happen. But if I'm honest, I know that as I look back at that meeting, I can see an old pattern emerge. Sometimes I'm just too impetuous. Sometimes I want things to happen according to my timetable. I, I slip into thinking that anything that I'm convinced of is therefore completely self-evident to any right-thinking Christian person. And therefore, if you don't agree with me, well, you just need to repent, really, you know? I'm prone to being impetuous, impatient, arrogant, a little bit frustrated with people for very little reason. I need to take my sins seriously. If we're wise, we all will. As well as recognizing our need to live by faith. 
I'm not quite sure when, but the phrase living by faith was hijacked at some point in the 20th century by well-intentioned godly people to describe an approach to financial planning which didn't involve either earning any money or directly asking anyone for money. Just live by faith, and it, and it came in. God honored that, you know, for whatever reason. But for all kinds of reasons, probably more good than bad, talking about living by faith like that has gone out of, gone out of fashion. We, we don't really use the phrase. People don't talk about living by faith now. The problem is that I think trusting God has gone a little bit out the window too. I strongly suspect that when people look back at, at our generation, at our legacy, they will not be saying they were prone to being super spiritual. I suspect they'll say with some justification that we weren't spiritual enough. See, the danger for for this generation is surely that we take too much responsibility on our shoulders and slip into thinking that if we assess and mentor and strategize, then churches will grow and the kingdom will will, will be built. Now, none of us would ever dream of saying this out loud, but our battle cry, our, our way of operating is in strategy we trust, in giftedness we trust, in training we trust. We need to read on in Deuteronomy. Because when we read on, it turns out that not only did Israel make some terrible choices, but they came up way short in the trust department as well. Look at what Moses says from chapter 2, verse 8. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And Yahweh said to me, don't harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given our to the people of Lot for a possession. Verse 16, so as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, today you're across the border of the Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory, don't harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I've given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. Now, that's one of those parts of the Bible. It's easy to miss how earth-shattering this is, because it's kind of clothed in geographical detail. You know, any mention of Moab or Ammon is more than enough to send most of us, you know, into a coma. But don't miss this. This is the only place in the Bible where God says that other nations, in this case Israel's cousins Moab and Ammon, get a land in the same way that God had given Israel this one. The only difference is that unlike Israel, these foreigners had managed to go in and take it. And it turns out that there were even tall and scary blokes in their lands too, but that hadn't seemed to put them off. Just in case we missed this, the, the publisher adds a helpful comment from verse 10. By the way, the Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many, and as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they're also counted as Rephaim giants. You know, the Moabites call them Emim. You know what? They dispossessed them, destroyed them, and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession, kind of. He says the same thing from verse 20. The Ammonites call their giants Zamzumim, a people great and many and as tall as the Anakim. But Yahweh destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau. See, even Ammonites and Moabites appear to trust God more than the Israelites. They trust God. God intervenes for them. They take their land. But the Israelites, they said, nah, they're giants in there. God's people have trust issues. Now, we're only in chapter 2, but I hope you've picked up already just how much fun it must have been to sit there and listen to Moses twist his knife in the spiritual heart of the nation in this talk. I guess people were hoping for a kind of rising send-off from the old boy before he pops his clogs, you know. Instead, he, he delivers a searing indictment of the refusal of God's people to trust him. I happened to be in the Keswick Convention in the UK when John Stott gave his last ever public address. It's kind of there wasn't a dry eye in the house for, for many of us in my generation. We'd gone through kind of AFES groups, just kind of waiting for the next John Stott book to come out. Because there, there wasn't a whole lot there that you could trust and rely on. Even though very few of us knew him personally, we owed this man an enormous debt. 
there was a tear in, in, in my eye and, and in lots of people's eyes as, as this kind of pale shadow of the man he'd been struggled up to the lectern with a, with a minder and, and a stick, you know, to give his last message from 1 Corinthians. Very moving. Would have been a real shock to the crowd if John Stott had then said, now there are a few things I need to put you sinners straight on. Let me go back over the past 40 years and tell you where you went wrong. <laughs> but that's what Moses does. And why does he do it? Because Moses knows that the only hope for Israel doing any differently, any better from this point on, is if they trust him. If they faced their sinfulness in their past and thrown themselves on Yahweh again. Moses is preaching to teach them to live in repentance and faith. He's pointing out that Israel's past was tailored to teach them repentance and faith. Your past, like mine, should teach us to live in repentance and faith. That constant rhythm of running back to God when we've messed up and putting our trust in Him again. I'm going to suggest to Scott that he include the following in the church planting assessment. Please relate at least one incident in the past two years where you have been an idiot, where you have refused to trust God as a result, showing yourself to be a complete failure and therefore completely unsuited to plant anything. I think that should be a deal breaker, you know, because if you, if you can't answer that question, you, you don't understand what it means to live in repentance and faith yet. You need to go and practice being an idiot, you know, you know, but seriously, if you think of the past year, five years, 10 years of your life, are you able to face it honestly? In particular, are you able to face your, your failures, your mistakes, the stuff you've done that you're deeply ashamed of? And does thinking of that have the effect of making you throw yourself on God in weakness again? And asking him for his limitless resources to help you to make better decisions, better choices right now. When you think back to you, Long for the future to be different in God's strength. Does your past and mind show us just how much we need God? Is your past the soil of, in which a life of repentance, constantly running to God, and faith repeatedly and consciously entrusting ourselves to God flourishes and grows? Should be. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, in an often quoted statement, says that the events that Moses revisits in these chapters are written for us. What does he mean by that? Well, just listen to what he says. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, nor grumble as some of them did. These things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages come. Then Paul says this, Therefore, let anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. When it says these things were written for us, Paul says these things are written to teach us that we are flawed people who constantly wander off. To remind us that every time we take a misstep, we need to get back on track as soon as possible to drive us to trust God. Now, for most of us, there are things in the past which do continue to drag us down. Wouldn't this be a great time to face them? Moses very deliberately takes these people through the pain of their national recent past so that they might be freed to enjoy life with God in the land. He knows that dealing with past disobedience is a key to future obedience. That's how the gospel works. It's only when we see that Jesus has to die on a cross to face the anger we've provoked and to bear the punishment that we'd earned that we can begin to see how unspeakably marvelous it is that God the Son was willing to do it for us. It's only then that we stop trusting ourselves and throw ourselves on Christ. In a little excuse for a book that I wish I'd written, Living the Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney, if you ever see it, it doesn't even look like a proper book. You know, it, it, it looks like it belongs in the Christian merchandise site, part of the bookshop rather than on the shelf. But it's just gold. 
And CJ says this. He says, ask me how I'm doing on any given day, and you might be surprised by the response. I don't say fine, thanks, or I'm great. I say better than I deserve. <laughs> he says, it seems to catch people off guard. Many times, Christ- non-Christians have argued that I suffer from low self-esteem. <laughs> he says, no, I just understand who I am and where I deserve to be. I deserve God's wrath. Honestly, I deserve to be in hell. But instead, I'm God's child. I'm forgiven and loved by him. I'm going to heaven. I am doing much better than I deserve. See, facing the past is enormously freeing. It comes as a profound relief. It takes away the need to put on a show to keep up appearances. It opens up the reality of grace to us, enables us to taste and see just how good our God is. It enables us to trust God, to live by faith. That really matters. See, because once we face that, it frees us to see our successes too in an entirely different light. We need to take our sins seriously and to live by faith in Christ. And we do need to understand success. If there's one thing that's harder to handle than failure, it's success. Especially if we're Christians and want to deal with it in a godly way. That's why after all the depressing stuff about Israel's past mess-ups, Moses changes his tone and starts to talk about their successes. But what becomes clear is that it's actually just as important to think properly about what has gone well as it is about what has gone badly. 2 verse 30, here's what Moses says. Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by, for Yahweh your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is in this day. Yahweh said to me, behold, I've begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his lands. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And Yahweh our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. We captured all his cities. There were no survivors. Verse 36, the Yahweh our God gave all into our hands. In some ways, it's a shocking story of the consequences of rebelling against God. But Moses' main point here is, is very simple. He says, when we do what God says... Things go smoothly because God does exactly what he has promised. His point's this. When we succeed, it's all down to God. I can imagine the Israelites sitting there listening to Moses going, come on, get on with it, Moses. You haven't even got to the end of your introduction at the end of chapter 3 yet. We've been sitting here for ages. We know all this. But the old man knows exactly what he's doing. Just in case they weren't listening, Moses says it all again the start of chapter 3. He won't be rushed. We turned and went up on the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrai. But the Lord said to me, do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. So it goes on. Same narrative. Finishes with a riveting verse 11. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. Why is it important that King Og slept in a very large bed? It's because he was a very large man. He was a giant. This was a huge win for Israel. Sion caused no problems. The mighty Og caused no problems. His large friends caused them no problems. Why not? Because they trusted God and did what they said. That was the secret of their success in the Transjordan outside the land. The bit of the land that gave them some practice in fighting Canaanites. How were they supposed to throw out the Canaanites even if they did make them look puny? Trust God and he would do it for them. If they were going to succeed on the other side of the border, they needed to remember and understand not just their failures, but also Sion and Og, their successes. Their failures were down to them. Their successes, for those they needed to thank God. It's really important for us to get the fact that the gospel addresses both our successes and our failures. Simultaneously lifts up our heads and brings us down to size. It makes us feel exposed and ashamed and immensely significant and secure. It makes us cry and then laugh. It shows us how significant we are 
and how insignificant we are. If we're to live in a place and at a time when life is easy, we need to know our successes only ever come from God. Because we are just so prone to patting ourselves on the back. Moses returns to this theme over and over again in Deuteronomy. The words we read earlier from chapter 6 finish like this. When Yahweh brings you into the land, he swore to bring you with the houses and the vineyards, verse 12. Then take care lest you forget Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We need to understand our successes. They're never down to us. In the the, the 17th century, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called The Nature of True Virtue. It's not an easy book, but but in it he says one of the most helpful things I've, I've ever read. He points out that even at our best, we are so prone to being selfish and self congratulatory that we are incapable of doing truly good things. Even our best acts are tinged with self interest. When we do good things, we just can't help but pat ourselves on the back. I was forced to reflect on this a while ago at college. It's time for cleanup uh, on our college retreat. We're away for the weekend. We were asking for volunteers to do the various jobs. When it came to cleaning the bloke's toilets, I was the first to put my hand up. As our team got working, as I happily scrubbed a bowl, you know, I just thought, wasn't it a great example for the students to have the college principal cleaning the toilets? They really are lucky to have such a humble, selfless guy leading them. Blown it again. Was it good to clean the toilets? Yes, it was. When I was cleaning the toilets at that point, was it really all about me? Sadly, yes, it was. If I can do that about cleaning toilets, what is my capacity to do it on other things? We've got a horrendous capacity to get it spectacularly wrong, even when we're getting it right. Similarly, you know, when I think back to our time in Dublin, we were there for 12 years, so tempting to think we did a great job. We went to two small churches, 30 in one with about three Christians, 15 in the other with one Christian, and the 14 other people hated the Christian. Okay, I, I, I like to aim, start low. Any improvement looks good after that. 12 years later, we're 120 in one church, 35 in the other, and a church plant of 120, almost all Christians. There were hundreds of adults and children hearing the gospel every year. All 300 grade 10s in the local Catholic high school were doing Christianity Explored every year run by our church in this school. God did great things. Would you like me to tell you how I pulled that off at great cost to myself? Even when we do the right stuff, Moses explains that we need to be very careful to remember that it is God who wills and acts according to his good purpose in us. All successes are down to him. In fact, for many of us, success is much harder to deal with than failure. Here's the pattern of my life. If I fail, my failure is usually pretty obvious. And however reluctantly, I have to face that. And sooner or later, I'm forced to run back to God and the people I've hurt in repentance and move on. Failure does tend to drive me back to God. Success? Success tends to drive me away from him. I think, what a great job. What a great guy. I never said out loud, but you know how, how lucky people are to have me around. I can do things. I know things. I'll take it from here on. I remember years ago hearing John Stott speak. And at the end of a great day, he's got a rousing ovation from everybody gathered, cried about this side. And he, he sat in a seat kind of right in the corner of the, the, the stage. And he sat with his, with his head down. And he was sitting with one finger like this. I think he was reminding himself that we need to handle our successes. So where does that leave us? Actually, Deuteronomy 1 to 3 is a very simple message. Mistrust yourself, trust God. 
That's the point, Deuteronomy 1 to 3. And he finishes this intro to Deuteronomy with a painful personal illustration. Here's what he says from 3 verse 23. I pleaded with Yahweh at that time saying, O Lord God, you've only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven and earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. Great start. Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, the good hill country in the Lebanon. But Yahweh was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And Yahweh said, enough from you. Don't speak to me of this matter again. Go up, look at the land for you're not going in. Why does Moses take us through that? His own painful personal history. Moses says, you want evidence that we mess up, that we need to face our failures and understand that when we succeed, it's all down to God. Moses says, look at me. The very fact that the greatest leader that Israel ever has doesn't make it into the land was a reminder to all of them that our past failures and our desperate need of grace are staring us in the face. Moses says, look at me, even I got caught up in disobedience. You sucked me in and I too trusted myself. And the result, I am dying here. There's a lot riding on this, Moses says. Mistrust yourself, trust God. See, this whole book is framed by Moses' death. Must have packed quite a punch when he brought it up in chapter 3. The fact that he dies at the end of his own talk kind of even outstrips that. It's got to be the most kind of effective illustration of all time, really, you know? This really matters. For Moses, sin matters, faith matters, humility matters all through the Bible. This same message comes through again and again and again. We need to know what we're like. We need to know what God is like and how he works. And so we need to trust the God of the gospel. All that and more is very clear even here in Deuteronomy. But how much clearer is it for those of us who've seen the Lord Jesus Christ live and die and rise, for those of us who know that the Lord Jesus rules in heaven? Having seen Jesus, how much more keenly should we feel our sin and our weakness? How much more obvious should it be to us that we need to trust him? We know that real success is judged by him and will be judged by him, for it's given by him and owned by him. In the New Testament letter, which is more to say about Moses than any other, 2 Corinthians, Paul says this in chapter 9, and with these words from 2 Corinthians 9, we're done. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen.